Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Cheers, Rockets fans. Welcome to The Locker Line, an exclusive podcast from the home of the Rockets. Sports Talk 790. The Locker Line is proudly served to you by Carbox Clutch City Locker. It is good! Oh, yeah. Red Nation, get ready. Get ready. Get ready. The Locker Line starts now. Welcome aboard. Welcome in to another episode of The Logger Line, served to you courtesy of Clutch City Logger of Carbock Brewing. I'm your host, Ben DuBose, editor of USA Today's Rockets Wire and contributor to Sports Talk 790, the official flagship radio station of your Houston Rockets. Today, I'm joined, as always, by our co-host and producer out of Portugal, Paolo Alves. Paolo, how's it hanging? You ready for uh, loss number 13 over the weekend? Man, at this point, I don't even know. I was I was one of the few people uh, that was rooting for the loss against Charlotte both because of Lottery Oz, the, 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 the second-worst team in the league, and because I thought, hopefully, that that might be the straw that breaks the camel's back in, in regards to Stephen Silas. It's been, it's been 12 hours, so give or take, and it, nothing has happened yet, so hope is slowly dwindling. So it's We'll see. Not the Full best, disclosure, but... we're recording this at about 10 a.m. on Thursday morning, so if anything changes... We'll have another episode out after that, right? Yeah, we'll just we'll just sit down again. We'll we'll record uh, we'll record um, at night as well. Uh, but other than that, I mean, if you look at the games objectively, the, the defensive effort's been awful. But I mean, that's kind of you want more accountability for sure. But that's that's kind of what you expect out of a rebuilding team and a game where guys are getting it going offensively. And losing because they're not good enough defensively is a pretty typical um, rebuilding team loss. So the last couple of games yeah. have been very encouraging from a, you know, just individual offensive play standpoint. Because in the collective, they still look fairly bad. But, you know, you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. And to set this up, as we're recording this, the Rockets have lost 12 in a row now, which is the longest losing streak by any team in the NBA this season. The frustration starting to boil over, not just in the micro, but the macro as well. We are going to talk about the recent John Wall comments regarding tanking the organization, its development of younger players. We're going to get into all of that today, but we're going to start with the product on the floor because there have been some subtle changes of late. Jalen Green tied his career high on Wednesday night. I know it's the 12th straight loss, and I know it feels like they're never going to win again. They're back in action Saturday in Minnesota, where I think they'll definitely be underdogs. They just lost to the Timberwolves at home less than two weeks ago, so it's hard to have a ton of confidence going into that game. We'll see what happens on the coaching front as the losses mount. But this past week, it's been a little bit different. We saw Alper and Shingun have a career game against the Lakers, 33-15. Then also he had six assists, four blocks. We talked about Jalen Green tying his career high and did it very efficiently, making 16 of 24 shots against, who did they play? Charlotte, of course. Uh, I blanked for a second because all these losses are running together. 
who could ever forget the tank off on Wednesday night between the NBA's worst teams at Toyota Center, the Rockets and Hornets. And of course, the Rockets ended up on the short end of that. And now their streak is at a dozen again, the longest by any team in the league this season. And over the past week, there have been some subtle differences in large part because I think the Rockets now are starting to lose games for different reasons. They're falling short of bodies, quite frankly. Kevin Porter Jr. has missed the last four games with a left foot contusion. He's still got some pain in his big toe. He can't really push off, according to Steven Silas. So there's no exact return timetable for him just yet. We also saw Jabari Smith Jr. walk off or basically limp off during Wednesday's game against the Hornets with a right ankle sprain. And those typically take at least a week and often two to three, depending on the severity, to fully recover from and get back to playing NBA basketball with the fluidity that you need. And for a team like the Rockets, that's already at certainly an experience disadvantage, but to an extent, a talent disadvantage against most of the teams they play. Now, all of a sudden, you're having to give more minutes to guys like Dacian Nix, who we saw getting extended run earlier in the week. Josh Christopher has found his way back in the rotation. You're still seeing the Garrison Matthews minutes, and you're seeing guys that, quite frankly, probably should not be out there. Now, with Christopher, I know it's just his second season. He was a first-run pick, so you can certainly make the argument that he's worthy of the developmental time, even if it doesn't go well, simply to see what you have there now that he's in his second NBA season. I'll accept that, but I think when you look at the season as a whole, one of the things that's been really discouraging about the Rockets being at the bottom of the NBA in terms of their record, now the worst losing streak, is that up until this recent streak, they have been relatively healthy. And so it's taken until the last week or so to where you see the injuries start to pile up that inevitably happen over an 82-game season, again, to KPJ, to Jabari, that's two of your five starters, and it's not just what it does to your starting lineup, because sure, you can slide in guys like KJ Martin and still feel fairly functional with that grouping, but it's the guys that it forces into your rotation off the bench, and it's especially problematic because the Rockets have had games get away from them late in the third, early in the fourth quarters when you're largely going with reserves, not all reserves, but much more, of course, than your starting groups early in the first and third quarters. So those are the things that if you really look underneath the hood of this rocket season, they have actually been until the past week, really healthy as opposed to say Charlotte, who's in the two slot in the tankathon standings, if you will, they've been without LaMelo ball for about half the season. And he left Wednesday's game early. That kind of stuff tends to happen. The fact that the rockets have been this bad, despite being relatively healthy that's alarming. And yet, in the very short term, there actually are some positives that you can take from that in the sense that, look, as you were setting up, we have seen some positive signs in recent games. Jalen Green, Alperin Shingun, they've had their moments this week. And the Rockets simply lost in large part because they didn't have enough depth of rotation caliber players. So for me, that's one slight positive to take out of this recent stretch. It's not that there's no positives on an individual level. In fact, you can argue that two of your most important building blocks in the entire organization, maybe your top two, well, I guess two of three, Jabari's in there as well. But Jalen and Alper and Shingun have clearly shown you flashes. It just hasn't been reflected in the win-loss record based on all these other issues, and especially as the injuries start to mount. Yeah, to be fair, to be fair to the Hornets as well. They, they've had half a season with Lamella, half a season without him. And they have six wins, six six wins with him and six wins without him. So he's not particularly contributing to winning either because his defense is so bad. Right. But focusing back on the Rockets, I mean, it's 
the injuries are not a good thing, obviously. They take players off the floor, they, they make the team weaker per se. But once again, it happens, just like it did last year, that when someone gets injured, unintentionally, the coaching staff is forced to make an adjustment that the fans have been clamoring for for the longest time. And right now, that is that the team's built is the team's offense is built around Jalen Green and Alperen Sengun and their two-man game, which and the two of them have been developing great chemistry together and they look really good together offensively. And you just you have to wonder at this point, there's there's no way there's any there's there's any going back. Sengun, since KPJ has been hurt, he's averaging. Or he's not averaging, but he had a 33, 15, and 6 game with four blocks and a 24, 12, and 6 game. This, this is not a coincidence. This team plays around Shingun a lot more when KPJ is not on the floor. Do I think this is KPJ's fault? No, I don't think it is. And I think this also explains a lot of the um, issues that people bring up with team building. For example, if you look at teams that are built around, um, how do I say this? That are built around a passing, scoring big man. Let's look at the Denver Nuggets or look at the Sacramento mm-hmm. Kings. Usually, um, I'm not going to include uh, the Sixers because Embiid is used as a pick and roll big sometimes with James Harden, and it's fairly it's fairly efficient. These teams often don't have a true point guard. They often have two shooting guards. And you, you could argue that Aaron Fox is a true point guard, but he's very much, if he is a true point guard, he's very much fits the frame of a score first point guard rather than a pass first one. He's, you know, he's a scoring guard with playmaking ability. And if you look at the Rockets, and if you consider Alperin Shingun to be used as Jokic, Sabonis is, having two shooting guards one of them with plus playmaking, if you consider him a shooting guard, because Kevin Porter Jr., if you are classifying him as a shooting guard, he is over-talented playmaking-wise, then the roster makes a lot, of, a lot more sense. You've got you've got the, your your offensive hub in Shingun. You've got two scoring guards, shooting guards that are good off the ball in Jalen and KPJ. And then you have a bunch of switchable three in the wings. Jay Shante, KJ Martin, Javar Smith Jr., Ari Eason. Guys are going to make it easier to fit an offensive hub at center, which usually implies that that player is not great defensively because it's just the way the cookie crumbles, unfortunately. Um, I guess with the exception of Embiid. The roster makes a lot more sense uh, when you look at it from that perspective. And it's finally being used that way. And I don't think KPJ coming back should mean that it stops being used that way. We know KPJ is better when used off the ball. And I refuse to believe that KPJ can't throw an entry pass or 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 just call the simple set to get Klingon a post-up, which are not hard at all, and, and and swing the ball to someone who's in a position to make an entry pass or just make the entry pass himself. That, that's not hard for a point guard. But what's hard for KPJ is making those next level reads and, 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 staying, um, and staying sharp and pushing the ball up the floor quickly. If you told KPJ to focus on being... A catch and shoot player, which means no more of the of the um, hesitation he sometimes has when he has catch and shoot uh, looks. To focus on his defense and to, and to in a pinch, right with typical shooting guard stuff. In a pinch, Jamal Murray can be um, a primary scorer. In a pinch, Jamal Murray, you know, late shot clock situations, fourth quarter um, when the team's adjusting to a different scheme, whatever. Those players bridge that gap because of their talent to score in isolation. But you build your 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 system around 
Shegun and most of the and most of your offensive positions are going to be around um, running plays for an offensive hub in Shegun. If you look at the team in that way, which is the way they've been playing the last couple of games, offensively it makes a lot more sense. The personnel fits, and the results are there. I mean, Shegun's having career games. Jalen Green is, is having career games, although he's I mean he's been inefficient still. But over his last four games, he's still averaging 29 in, in 29 points um, for rebounds, for assists on 47, 37, 78 splits. That's still amazing efficiency. Uh, he's shooting 10 threes a game. It, the team was built to be played this way, and it's confusing why it is not played this way more often. And the question becomes, when KPJ eventually comes back, will the team continue to play the way that they're playing now because offensively this works and defensively it's been the problems that we that we've always had and and, and I'll, I'll get to it after after um I share it back to you because I have a lot to say about our defense but I just don't think you can go back because as I said and and I said this earlier uh, in earlier podcasts as well even if you don't think Shingun has what it takes to become a, a, a productive enough player defensively to be a starter or to build around if you even if you still don't believe that Having this guy go out there and have, you know, 20 and 10 on the regular, which he has exceeded by a fair margin uh, in the last few games, will increase his trade value. And even if you don't believe he's the guy, someone will look at a 20-year-old 20, a 20 still. Of course, he's not, not even 21 yet. Someone will look at a 20-year-old having a tw- yeah. I mean, 20, 10, and 5 consistently on excellent efficiency and see someone who they can build around there. Teams, Teams bought into Jokic before he was good. Teams bought into um, Sabonis even when, when it looked like he was a lot player. The Kings are, I mean, Kings haven't played the playoffs in 20-something years, and they're in, in a playoff spot right now. Someone will buy into it, even if you don't. So yeah. even just from an asset management standpoint, that's what makes sense. And I really, really hope that we don't regress back to the way we were playing earlier in the season um, when KPJ comes back. Yeah, the argument against running everything through Shingun is how translatable it is to the end goal in terms of many years from now. Not that any of this is going to be a direct comparison, but you don't want it to be night and day from the formula that you're using when you eventually want to win. You want guys developing in a system that at least has vaguely similar parameters to how they're used in the future. And there are so few systems around the NBA that are run through a Shingun archetype that my guess is that there's been some fear of running through Shingun in year two simply because he's the best of a very bad group if you don't believe that he can be the lead option on a contender a few years from now, if you feel like you're going to have to dramatically change your playing style back to some other way to eventually contend. But the argument against that, and you set it up perfectly, is that it's not like you're doing anything useful as it stands. The system they have in place is terrible on both ends. If your concern about Shingun is his defensive liabilities and how he's going to eventually translate on that end, they're terrible aside from Shingun right now. There's no accountability. The guards, for the most part, are turnstiles. There's very minimal effort. None of this is something that you want to build 
your future around. You're going to have to dramatically reshape this roster from this season, no matter what. This is a cluster. So with that as the backdrop, you might as well see, you might as well maximize the guy who is clearly your best player right now, especially at offense. If nothing else, you increase his trade value and maybe you end up surprised that he can do some things that you didn't even expect. And I know there's been some talk about, well, how does he fit with Victor Wimbanyama? If you get that lucky for starters, that's only a 14% shot, even if you're the worst team like the Rockets. But that's a problem that you would love to have, and you can deal with that another day. Right now, this thing is so off the rails. This team's play on both ends and their lack of structure, lack of accountability is so glaring. I don't think there's much of anything tactically that you're going to take from what they're doing now and conceptually have it be a big part of a team you hope is contending four or five years from now. It's going to be a big change no matter what. So in my opinion, when you are this bad, you may as well just maximize your best players, punt all the translation questions for another day. And if nothing else, then you'll have more fun. You'll be more watchable. And even if you don't believe in this version of Shingun, Shingun is the lead guy that is being a guy that you and a type of play that you build around moving forward then at a bare minimum, you increase his trade value because he's putting up 20 and 10 numbers at just 20 years old in year two. There's just not a lot of downside because continuing with the status quo, I I just reject the idea that there's all that much that they're going to gain positively from that. Yeah, and speaking speaking of trends, um, another trend that's been fairly worrying, and it may sound like a hypocrite a little bit because I wanted, not to this extent, but I wanted some of this as well. Dylan Green's... um, not only shot profile, but the circumstances in which he takes his shots have changed dramatically uh, yep. this year. I had a tweet about this that I mean that kind of went under the radar um, with all the drama that's been going around on Rockets Twitter. But I pulled up the stats before, you know, uh, last night's game about how many dribbles does Jalen Green take before taking a shot and his efficiency in all these parameters. To begin the season, we had uh, Matt Moore here, and, and I was preaching to him that Jalen Green is someone who translates to a winning environment because he's really good off the ball and he'll fit next to any ball, any star in the league. And most of the stars in this league are ball dominant, so that's very much an asset. And that's just completely gone down the drain. The way Jalen Green's being used has dramatically changed. For context, last year, 43% of Jalen Green's shots were taken with no dribbles or just one dribble. Uh, that's and they were taken at, at a um, 57% effective, effective uh, field goal percentage. So 57% of those shots were two, two, between two dribbles and six dribbles. Uh, the efficiency rating was was 47%. And then only seven, only 18% of those shots. I'm running out out the percentages, so they might not line up perfectly. But and then seven, 18% of those shots were with seven dribbles or more. And those were the least efficient shots at 43.5%. Last year, as I said, we were raving about Kellen Green's ability to play off the ball. And another thing that I pulled up is Kellen Green's personal um, trainer, I think his name's Mike Hill, uh, shout, out, shout out to him, had, yeah, a, I think that's had, right. had an interview with Kelly Eco earlier before the season started uh, in preseason, in which he talked about you know, Jalen Green's play and what he works on and what his game is and what he preaches to him, right? And 
throughout the entire interview, you'll hear quotes like keeping everything sharp and efficient and not over dribbling, finding your sweet spots. Um, he's not one of those guys that's going to have a, a crazy crisp ball handle. His handle is more like a Derrick Rose. Um, he, and so that means he's sharp and more efficient with, with his movements, right? He talks about uh, on the offensive end, playing with pace and playing within the flow of the offense, but also being aggressive and picking your spots wisely. Uh, when speaking about off the ball and playing next to KPJ, he brings up continuing to catch and shoot. Well, let's pick that one up, continuing to catch and shoot. This year, from 43% last year, shots between zero and one dribble, he's down to 2.6%. That's nuts. I'm sorry, I'm sorry for the wording, but that is nuts. Jalen Green's strong suit, his most efficient shots, have been decreased from a frequency of 43% to 2.6%, which translates to 97.5% of the time, Jalen Green's playing to his weaknesses. Mm. And it's important for Jalen Green to work on his weaknesses. So, you know, there's some value to organic learning a little bit, right? You, 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 these are young players. You want to put them in positions where they're uncomfortable some of the time. There's value in organic learning? There's, there's, there's a little bit of value. Oh, jeez. But just not as brutal as, as people preach it. Um, but I will. But at the same time, you've got to have these players play in their comfort zone sometimes. You know, motivation is important. These are human beings. You're not, you know, you're not dealing with machines, they need to see the ball go in the hoop to, for, for, the, for, for the game to come easier to them, you know. From 43% of mostly, you know, off-ball looks, uh, usually those come with, with, with less dribbles unless you're attacking a closeout. From 43% to 2.6% of the time is insane. And, uh, and for, for reference, I'll, I'll give the, the full context of what he's doing this year. It's 2.6% um, between 0 and 1 dribbles, uh, 54% efficiency. 67% to between 2 and 6 dribbles, a 44% efficiency. Uh, and this this number is fairly close to what it was last year. Last year it was 57%. This year is, it's 67%. And and 26% of, of them are 7 plus dribbles. And those are at 43% efficiency. Basically the same efficiency he had, he had last year. So we are, the, these are bad habits. These are terrible habits. Um, we don't want Dylan Green to become someone like James Harden. Uh, love James Harden, great player. But it's a lot easier to build a team if your shooting guard, even if he's your primary scorer, is able to play next to other two other um, offensive options. And playing through Shengun helps this as well. Um, Kellen's off-ball movement, Kellen's cutting, Kellen's uh, relocating the three, uh, um, around the three-point line got him a bunch of easy looks last season. And a, and a big part of why he's not getting those easy looks this season is also because the, the current offensive system doesn't, doesn't ask him to do that. Uh, the current offensive system asks him to be Luka Doncic whenever he has the ball, to do everything, to to collapse the defense, to make the extra read, to do everything. So playing through Shengun also helps um, bringing Dylan Green back closer to a shot profile that's healthy for his career. And it's healthy for team building in general. Um, so that's one of one of my concerns with with Jalen. Um, it's an, it's very important that he doesn't become just a microwave scorer. And being able to play off the ball is a big, and being proactive in playing off the ball is a very big part of, of 
not letting him become yeah. a one-dimensional player. Yeah, to your point on the Harden comparison, that's tricky because I'm sure there's people listening that are thinking if Jalen can be even a fraction of what James Harden was at his peak, that's a fairly good outcome. But the thing is, it's the player archetype to succeed at what James Harden does. You have to be so transcendently good on so many levels or else the whole thing basically comes crumbling down like a house of cards because that style of play, the margins you have to hit on to be valuable when you're dominating possessions to that extent and have everything run through you. You just have very little room for error, as opposed to if Jalen gets back to the player he was in his first year doing more things off the ball, doing more things without having to just dribble, 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 put up a shot and create everything himself, then that gives you just much more flexibility in terms of the way that he can become a useful player for you. It's not just one way at having to be like, 95th plus percentile at it there's just so many more ways when you look at it through that lens that you can actually have Jalen Green as a useful starter for you moving forward I said I wanted to touch on the defensive end so I'll touch on the defensive end uh, in a little bit I remember that you just touched on uh, when Banyama was fit with Langoon and I have a, um, a quick little rant on that as well Last uh, last draft class, last draft cycle, we were talking about the fit of the different players on the top three uh, with with Lengu, uh, Paolo Banquero, Jabari Smith Jr., and Chet Holmgren. And something that was often said about Chet Holmgren is that he is actually a perfect fit with Lengu because he's able to space the floor, he's able to guard the perimeter, and he's able to you know make up for the deficiencies of an operant Lengu type. And the way you do that is you play him in a Robert Williams type role as a free safety and you have Shingun, you know, and as a free safety, he's basically roaming and he's making up for everybody's deficiencies. Um, and you have Shingun basically overplay the three-point line whenever he's forced to guard the perimeter um, in hope, and he overplays the three-point line in hopes to be able to keep up with the player at least side by side to be able to deny, you know, the three-point shot and then uh, just a stop and pop normal mid-range shot. And kind of funneling them into what the, the shot blocker, which is which is in this case Chet Holmgren. The same thing works with with, with Wembanyama. You basically ask Shengun to overplay, knowing that he's going to be beat, and Shengun basically just has to cover the jump shot part of it. And then you have Wembanyama uh, and Jabari Smith, both of them um, ha- have like really good length to be able to deal with this. And their job is basically to make to you know help, and at the same time be able to. Uh, recover with their length and with their foot speed to contest shots uh, if a kickout does happen. Uh, it's not an impossible concept, and people usually say that Sheng, that Wembanyama means the end of Shengun with the Rockets. I think it's actually quite the opposite. On the defensive end, Wembanyama, like Chet Holmgren, are one of the very few and rare player archetypes that might that might actually make Shengun's defense work without him having to take a, a generational leap on, uh, on that end. Because if you're worried about his defense and you think that he, that his problems with, with athleticism and length can't be overcome, when Maniama and Chet Holmgren might be the only players in the NBA, uh, I guess you could add in maybe Jonathan Isaac or, or some length freak like that, that can make up for those deficiencies. So I just wanted to you know get that out of the way. I don't think when Maniama means Shengun's gone at all. I actually think 
there's an argument to be made that a Shengun Wembanyama Lipari Smith front court is actually more exciting than whatever we have going on on the on the on the back court right now. And most people do think that John Green is, you know, the main guy of, of the franchise. Um, that being said, the other thing I want to talk about, which is also related to defense, is what we're doing on defense right now, which is awful. And I know we bring up defensive effort. The defensive effort is awful. There's no accountability. Jalen Green right now is making me lose a lot of hope when it comes to his attitude on defense. Last year, I used to brag about how we would be down 20 in a game and we'd see Jalen Green he's fight still fighting through screens. Through screens. Yeah. yeah. Right now, not only is he not fighting through screens, he's not even bothering to to help or stack off correctly. He does it all the time. He's ball watching all the time. We give up threes one pass away because we help on everything. That's still going on. But what and, and we've talked about it extensively. But what I wanted to bring up is that it's not just Jalen Green. It's a systemic issue. Even guys who are known as you know as defensive guys like Keshan Tate, like Tariq, and like Jabari Smith himself will give up open threes because our current system is to help no matter what. No matter if there's no concept of danger levels, anything is considered a like a max level threat. Any drive, even if contested, will draw three defenders to help. Our system's awful, and a lot of people want to um, change out Salas because of defensive concerns and accountability. And I agree with it, and I think John Lucas will bring a lot more accountability, but it won't change the fact that even the guys who hold themselves accountable, like Jabari Smith, like Tarizan, like Keishan Tate, make terrible defensive decisions because that's what the system's asking them to do. And replacing Silas, I assume Lionel Hollins is the one responsible to for the defensive system. He's going to stay here. I mean, it doesn't really make sense to fire an assistant like halfway through a season, especially if you're going to probably hire a new, a new, a new coaching staff altogether in the offseason. So that's going to stay here for the rest of the season. Uh, the accountability factor is important, but our system right now just makes no sense. And I had a lot of hopes for, for Lionel Hollins. Um, from a from a defensive standpoint, it just looks awful, and I don't understand. I'm not as I, I always tell you guys, I'm not the biggest X's and O's guy, but uh, but I I can understand you know the basic levels of defense, and we just collapse at the at the smallest. Yeah, threat. I mean We're watch other teams struggling. play. Yeah, any dribble penetration for us is treated like a ten alarm fire. They just freak out, and of course it leads to drive and kick, it leads to dunks. There's just so much overhelping, and it's fundamental. That's not just an effort issue. There are effort issues, let's be clear, and perhaps a coach like John Lucas, who most presume would be the interim if the Rockets move on from Steven Silas, would be better just for effort on a day-in, day-out basis. That is part of it. But yes, some of it is schematic as well, probably a bigger part of it. So I think that's important to remind folks that honestly, if you're out on what this team is doing right now from a philosophical standpoint, and I think that's true of most of us, it's probably going to take until you fix the entire coaching staff to dramatically change that. Maybe you get a little bit of a bump if John Lucas is the guy in the short term. Yeah, you, you're there's likely, more of an incentive to play hard. Yeah, there's more of an incentive to play hard and, and 
Dylan Green, even KD Martin, who was a better defender last year, will probably give up less dribble penetration because we'll actually be locked in and we won't get blown yeah. by every single possession. So there won't be as much drive and kick. But when the drive and kick does happen, the system collapses completely. So we're still going to be awful. We're just you know going to be a little bit mm-hmm. less awful. Yeah, but I think the the fundamental shift that most people want is probably not going to take place until the off season when you likely see all or most of this coaching staff switched out. Again, it's the final fully guaranteed year of the contract of Steven Silas. And my guess is that if you want to make any hire of significance, which I strongly suspect they do, given their organizational incentive to start winning next season to turn around, really, it feels like just awful headline after awful headline to start changing the narrative. And of course, they owe draft capital to Oklahoma City in the 2024 to 2026 range. So they don't want to send decent draft picks to the Thunder. So many reasons. And of course, $60 million in cap space as well. Perhaps James Harden to get guys like that to turn things around as dramatically as this franchise needs it, having sunk to their current depths. You're going to need a big name coach and a big name coach is probably going to want well, certainly autonomy on a number of levels, and that includes being able to name his own staff. So while you might have some, I hope John Lucas, who has so much respect around the league, is a strong candidate to be retained. But for the most part, if Steven Silas goes or basically doesn't have his option picked up or isn't given a, a contract, however the Rockets want to do it, then my guess is there's a lot of change underneath him as well. And ultimately, it's going to take until the entire staff or close to it is cycled out, in my opinion, to see dramatic changes. Basically, if you're upset with the coaching staff right now and what the Rockets are doing, it shouldn't be all about Steven Silas. It should be about the entire staff, because again, this is really it's much deeper than just effort. Effort is part of it. But you're right, Paolo. A lot of this is fundamental as well. Having said that, Steven Silas is a figurehead, and this team has been the worst in basketball for three straight years. Their over-under this year was basically 23.5 to 26.5. Some of us thought that that was actually a little bit soft relative to the talent on the team, and yet they're on pace to win less than 20 games, to be worse than last year. Their 12-game losing streak is the worst of any in the league this season, They've lost 17 in their last 18. This is absolutely brutal. This was a year in which they wanted to see some signs of growth, not just individually, but collectively as well. We've seen none of that. And ultimately, we talk about these other coaches like Lionel Hollins and John Lucas. And if you disagree with some of the things philosophically that they're doing, yes, it's on the coaching staff. But Steven Silas was given autonomy to build his coaching staff, to bring in his guys. So ultimately, the buck stops with Steven to an extent on that front as well. So a lot of people are looking at these issues from the outside and wondering, why haven't the Rockets made a change yet? Paolo, you led off the podcast saying that you were basically rooting for a loss last night because a lot of us suspected that if the Rockets lost 12 straight, including one at home versus the second worst team in the NBA by record, that this might force them into a move. Not a dramatic move. Again, they, most of the staff would be there, but perhaps letting Steven Silas go midseason and replacing him with John Lucas. As we're recording this midday Thursday, that's yet to happen. So we're going under the assumption right now that at least for the time being, that Steven Silas is remaining in place. If for some reason that doesn't happen, then please stand by. We will have another episode to talk about what they do. But some people are undoubtedly going to wonder, why haven't the Rockets made the move yet? And ironically, 
I think it may in part have to do with the John Wall interview, which called out many of these problems. There were a lot of things that John Wall said in his explosive interview on Tuesday. If you're listening to this podcast, I strongly suspect that you've already heard or read about that interview in which he called the Rockets out for what he viewed as tanking and basically saying that the things that they're doing with these younger players are developing bad habits that would get them out of the league if they were playing anywhere else. Just some really harsh criticisms. And I'm sure while Rafael Stone was called out, well, I don't think it was by name. He said GM, but basically Wall was referring to Rafael Stone in some of his comments. Look, the day-to-day managing the young players and the situations that they're put into and the accountability, the structure, which is what Wall was getting at, that's within the domain of a head coach. And some are listening to me sort of make this correlation and undoubtedly thinking, okay, so John Wall puts a microscope on the coaching staff, on the leadership in Houston, and that makes them more likely to stay. At least in the short term, I think that might be the case because Steven Silas actually handled those comments very well, I thought. He first did an interview before Wednesday's game with Matt Thomas on Sports Talk 790, middle of the day, then in his pregame media session. Steven responded head on, and he basically said he understood where Wall was coming from. He called it an unprecedented situation in terms of the depth that the Rockets are rebuilding. And I just think it's very difficult to put Steven Silas out there, basically one man alone at a podium to basically defend the organization, which he did. Silas talked about that the organization decided the rebuild was underway. They had multiple conversations, came to the conclusion that him not playing would be the solution. And it's a very difficult situation for a veteran like John Wall who wants to win now. And Silas was the guy basically the liaison between the front office and the player back then. And now he's the liaison today in that he's basically the PR man. He is sitting in front of the mic. It's not Ruffle Stone. It's Steven Silas that's answering the hard questions, explaining how the Rockets came to these decisions and gently pushing back on some of the more extreme elements of what John Wall said. So before we go into the substance of it, and I do think that John Wall raised some fair questions and made some valid points, even if some of them were exaggerated, I do think that maybe this makes it a bit harder in the very short term to let Steven Silas go less than 24 hours after he's basically taking the mic to defend the entire organization. So I know at first glance that might sound a little backward, the idea that John Wall calling out these bad habits and things that are at least partially within within the domain of the coaching staff might make it more likely for Steven Silas to say. But just in terms of the optics of it, I think it's very difficult to immediately pivot away from Steven Silas if you are asking him to take the microphone and basically defend your organizational plan, not just now, but going back really a year and a half ever since the John Wall not playing arrangement came into being in, I think, September 2021. So my thought is that that makes it slightly less likely in the immediate future for Silas to be let go. Paolo, does that make sense to you? It does. It's kind of, I was kind of surprised that they let um, John Wall be the one that, not John Wall be the one, Simon Silas be the one that came out and, and dealt with the criticism. I do think at a certain point in time, Rafael Stone will probably have to come out and, and address it himself because I understand the um, the, strat- the strategy of 
saying as little as possible to give away as little as possible to the outside. We know how the NBA is uh, and, and NBA media in specific. But at some point, if you don't say anything, you're letting the narrative be formed against you by somebody else. Because unless there's something, unless there's something said, people are just going to believe whatever little things are, like whatever whatever little rumors there are. Um, but besides that, to to get into into what John Wall said, and I I have um, a lot of thoughts on it uh, at different points. Yeah. Well, actually. I want to lead off with one quick point that I think is important to note on this. Wall's comment regarding tanking, and then he immediately threw in a dig at Justin Patton, which I thought was really unfair. Now, Patton actually responded. Uh, he, he took it in stride and said, I thought we were cool and tagged him on Twitter. But this idea that the Rockets were tanking and he threw out uh, Justin Patton as an example of that, Adam Spillane dug up the data on when Justin Patton and John Wall started together that season, it was twice. And in those two games, the other starters were some combination of Victor Oladipo, Eric Gordon, Daniel House Jr., and P.J. Tucker. That is not tanking. Those are veterans. That is playing to win. So that right there undermines a bit of his point. Now, I'm not going to say it makes him just, you know, impeached that all of his testimony is then invalid. No, absolutely. The Rockets have made some decisions the last few years with draft placement in mind. And whether you want to call it tanking, intentionally losing, some of that comes down to semantics. The bottom line is draft placement has definitely been somewhat of a factor in many decisions this organization has made since James Harden forced his way out in January 2021. He overall has a fair overarching point with that. And perhaps there are some associated bad habits that can be picked up by young players like Jalen Green, Kevin Porter Jr., K.J. Martin. Wouldn't call it unprecedented, but yeah, it's a fair concern. So I do think Wall has a point. However, you also have to consider his unique situation in which he's fairly disgruntled right now on a number of levels. If you listen to the full interview, it was basically a vent session. Right now, his season with the Clippers is not going as he wanted it to. There's a lot of talk that he could be a trade candidate. And that interview is basically one gripe after another going back through the last few years and how things haven't gone his way. And to an extent, he's right. He's had some terrible breaks, both medically and also being basically stuck in that situation with the Rockets where he wasn't able to play, but he couldn't build a market for himself elsewhere because of his contract. It probably wasn't realistic to expect the Rockets to buy him out, although that was an option. We'll get into that with nearly two full years left and. 90 plus million dollars. Oh, that's a hell of a lot to ask of Tillman Fertitta to foreclose any possibility of a trade early, yet the contract ultimately made the deal almost impossible to move. I do think that Wall's underlying sentiment, that overall pessimism and negativity, there's reasons for that. He has had some tough breaks. However, you also have to understand that players in his shoes are going to push their agenda whenever possible. And in this case, the notion that the Rockets were tanking, that he was just simply not given a chance, is much better for his image than the truth, which in my opinion is that John Wall was out there. He was a regular participant in games during that 20-game losing streak alongside many veterans, and they still just could not get it done. 
And that's a bitter pill for him to swallow. And it's easier for him to sort of point the finger at the organization, say they're tanking. And superficially, a lot of people aren't going to dig deeper. When you actually dig deeper, though, the excuse, at least in that particular circumstance, and he brought it up with the name Justin Patton, it doesn't hold up. And and John Wall also knows, by the way, that Rafael Stone does not want to get in a public pissing match with a prominent NBA player six months from when the Rockets are going to have all this cap space and trying to sign difference makers to help them climb up the standings. It does Rafael Stone very little good to get in the weeds. I do think, to your point, it would be beneficial if Rafael Stone had more of a voice. There's all sorts of things that can take off. We saw the Adam Spillane podcast comments go viral on Wednesday regarding Stone's participation in practices, halftime coaches meetings, postgame meetings, and I'm sure there's two sides to that story. But regardless, we're not really hearing Stone's side at all, and there is some value in getting in front of the message because when you don't things can spiral out of control but i think with wall and some of the specificity that he went into with his comments rafael stone is not going to get in the weeds of trying to push back on at least publicly well this is wrong because look we surrounded john wall and justin Patton with veterans who were ready to win that should have been able to do more than they did no because at that point it seems like you're just trying to throw john wall under the bus and in a player-friendly nba the player empowerment era that's going to go over absolutely terribly so to some extent john wall knows that he has a very strong hand in that the powerful people in the organization are going to somewhat walk on eggshells they're not going to try and aggressively tell him he's wrong And he's also in a position where it's advantageous to his agenda to push the idea that things were out of his control. And superficially, people do know this is the third year the Rockets have been the worst team by record. A lot of casuals are just going to say, hey, the Rockets are tanking to some extent, regardless of whether what you think of the semantics of that. And John Wall's not wrong, and he's going to sort of get away with using it to his benefit. But I think it's important to point out that with the Justin Patton comment in particular, that is something you can point to. It's a small part of what he overall said, but it is factually wrong. And the reason I lead with that is I do think it shows you that some of this is agenda pushing. We talk about that on Twitter a lot with you know fans, but it can also be a thing with players and teams and executives and coaches. Everybody has their own agenda. There's two sides to every story. And this is Wall's side. It's not gospel. It's part of what's going on, but it's not the whole story. So before we go into some of the specifics as far as the bad habits and the questions he raised, which I do think are fair, I think it's important to lead off by pointing out that, again, this is just one side of the story. John is telling the side that is beneficial to him, not necessarily the truth. This is not an unattached third party. This is a guy who very clearly has a motivation to try and spin things a certain way. So that's why I think it's important to look at this from what Stephen Silas said, and hopefully Rafael Stone addresses some parts of it as well, because again, the John Wall part is just sort of one angle of a complex story. Yeah, I think you, I think you made a really good job of pointing out uh, one of the things that I was going to point out, which is everybody tells a story from their own perspective and then considering their own you know, personal benefits that come from from telling that story. Is John Wall just, you know, completely wrong? No, but he is exaggerating to an extent. And if you've ever been 
in a conflict ever in your life and you've only heard one side of the story, usually your opinion changes when you hear the other one. The difference here is Rafael still doesn't get to tell the side of the story. Um, because as you said, he doesn't get, they choose not to. They choose not to, and, and, and you can see why, as you said, because you know, you don't want to especially when you're as bad as the rockets are right now, it won't be taken well that you're going against, you know, a respected veteran like John Wall. That being said, um, he said, and I quote, we lost 20 in a row. We're trying to get into the specifics, of course. Um, we're trying to lose on purpose, tanking. We started some dude named Justin Patton. Our starting lineup was me, David Nwaber, Keshan Tate, Justin Patton, and somebody else. Well, first of all, like you said, um, I'm, I don't have uh, Spell Lane's three pulled up, but I do have Nathan Fox. And he actually went and pulled the specific stats. And the top eight players in terms of minutes uh, in the 20 game losing streak that Keanu was referencing are number one, Jay Shante, number two, Sterling Brown, who was having a great season and got the biggest contract of his career, not by much, but the, the biggest contract of his career the year afterwards. John Wall himself, Daniel House Jr., Victor Oladipo, PJ Tucker, Eric Gordon, and David Nuaba. There's nobody here under 25. So that one goes out, uh, uh, like he played two games with Justin Patton and Justin Patton only came in because we were during the COVID year and everybody was injured all the time. Do we not remember the amount of 10 days we had? Those are not on purpose. Yeah, Rockets set the record for most players on a roster that year with 30 something. Yeah, but, and I think a lot of people heard the term, the term tanking and now there's a huge narrative on Twitter that people are saying, oh, they these um you can't blame Silas or the players because the front office is telling them to lose on purpose. No, that's not how you tank in the NBA. You build a roster that's not good enough to win, and you and you tell your and that you tell your head coach to do the best he can with it. And that's and that's how we see sometimes DMs don't build a roster bad enough to lose enough. Though the Oklahoma City Thunder have struggled with a roster that most would have indicated that would be one of the worst in the league. And they've won too many games sometimes, too many games for the purpose of tanking, for example. This year, the Utah Jazz was another team that most people pointed out as, and, and they have a lot of parallels to the Rockets back then. They have just a bunch of random role player vets that ended up on the team. But hey, Coach Will Hardy is doing the best he can, and they are a playing team right now. Back then, Stephen Salas was not good enough, plus injuries that we didn't end up doing it. Thank God we didn't because we got Leon Green as a reward. But this concept that whatever Stephen Salas does right now is completely um, not his fault and that he's just being, and this involves the Spolin interview, the Spolin uh, podcast quote as well, that all of a sudden Stephen Salas is just a pawn and that Stuart Faustone is deciding everything around the organization from who plays to how they play to the systems they run to actually telling them actively to lose when there's no information out there, the little bit of information that hits is taken com- is completely overblown. That's how social media works. And this is an exact example of that is that exact same thing. And that, yeah, it's, absolutely. That, it's, it's, it's that plus people not remembering some specific things that go on. Because we remember, if we go back to last season, we remember some overarching points, but you don't remember the day-to-day. And, and uh, for those who have kept up with me since then, I used to be in the in the in the post game spaces every day, so I lived the day to day of the team pretty fiercely, and I and so I remember some of the things that were going on. And you cannot tell me that Stephen Silas is a good head coach when 
for example, one of the most glaring examples of this. We were we had to wait for the longest time to run Alperen Sengun and Christian Wood together to see if they worked before he got yeah. traded. That, you know, but then when we finally did use the use those two together, we reversed their roles. We used the post player, Alperen Sengun, who can't shoot, as the floor spacer, and we used Christian Wood, who is a love threat to his to his credit. But who we were not using as a love threat, we were having him slip every screen into a post-up. The guy that can actually shoot on high volume. And he was the inside big with with Alperen Shingun standing at the three-point line. I'm sorry, that's a basic head coaching blunder. This season, we run Bruno Fernando. If he he has shot more than 10 threes his entire career, I'll be shocked. And we run a pick and pop with him. I mean, I know, you know, I, I'm not completely saying it's not Rafael Stone's fault. I think usually the truth is somewhere in between basically every time. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some fault with with uh, Rafael Stone getting too involved. But I also think that completely exonerating Stephen Silas is absolutely ridiculous. He is still, he still has, I think, the, the worst, you know, three-year span record of all time. And the team doesn't look good in it. And and we see coaching blunder after coaching blunder after coaching blunder after coaching blunder every single year. I don't want to be too mean, but I legitimately believe that Steven Salas is one of the worst head coaches of all time. And as a head coach, I, I, I don't know what it would be as an assistant, and that might be a hot take, but I think a competent head coach would have us easily have 10 more wins than what we have right now. With the talent that we have, if we put them in place in in, in positions to succeed, um, in in a little bit of more more overarching point, if you next offseason get a good coach and you get a, a couple of good vets in free agency and you get a good draft pick, I I I totally I think the ship is ready is very easily back on track. But just taking that that parallel out of the way, the way people reacted to. The phrase we were trying to lose on purpose, tanking, was completely overblown. Oh, yeah. Because it went from one extreme to the other once again, and all of a sudden, everything is Stone's fault, and Stephen Salas has done nothing wrong the whole time. Yeah, which is absolutely silly, because the points that John Wall made that were valid, I'm quoting him, don't get used to this. It's just not how the NBA is. It's a bad organization right now. They got to fix some shit. I always told Jalen and KPJ, don't get adjusted to this losing. That's not how the league is. I had to tell them the shit you're getting away with here. Go to any other team. You'd be out of the league. You wouldn't play. I'm trying to explain that to them because they think it's sweet. Some of that is day-to-day coaching. When we talk about accountability, Steven Silas is not, or Raphael Stone, excuse me, is not the guy on the sidelines. Steven Silas is not being buzzed by Raphael Stone telling him when to make a substitution, when to call out a guy for his lack of effort. This is something that is, even if you want to go to the most extreme anti-Raphael Stone perspective possible, there are things that are still clearly within the purview of the coaching staff. He has the autonomy to do certain things and use players in certain ways. Your Alperen Shingun Christian Wood example from a year ago is a is a good one, I think. He is simply choosing not to. So this idea that Stephen Silas is nothing but a puppet, I'm sorry, that's just silly. You 
can argue against Raphael Stone. Again, I think the Rockets front office would be better served to start doing some interviews. I think that they're hurting themselves by not addressing things as they come out. Not every single thing, but at least just generally talk about what the plan is, what's going on week to week. I can recall even last year, I think Raphael Stone did weekly interviews with uh, Sean Salisbury of Sports Talk 790, just one per week, about 10 or 15 minutes. I don't know why that stopped, but it has not been a thing this season other than maybe once or twice. And just a little thing like that, which, of course, even if someone isn't listening, someone on Twitter or a message board is going to transcribe it and clip it, and people are going to see what came out of it. That has so much value because in the absence of anything from the front office, people's minds run wild, especially when they're losing like the current Rockets are, and people are just so on edge every day because they're so angry. A lot of this is performance theater, but at the same time, it does drive the narrative. And it's unfortunate six months from when the Rockets are going to have up to $60 million in cap space and want to be fairly attractive on the market around the league. It's unfortunate. And this is just something that, again, it's not an obligation, but I do think it would help the front office to be a bit more forward and explain their side of the story because when they don't then it's easier for things like this john wall interview to just get blown wildly out of proportion and for important context to be lost a couple other things i wanted to point out as far as the wall interview and then we can try and wrap up there were two other angles that i thought were very much misunderstood first off there was the line where wall was recalling his conversation with Steven Silas, and he was quoting Steven as saying, this is what the GM wants. And a lot of people on Twitter were acting like, oh, there it is, of course. And I'm like, really? How could you not think that a decision like not playing John Wall, a five-time All-Star, a 30-year-old veteran point guard still in his prime, was the head coach? That's an organizational decision about years and years setting yourself up moving forward. Coach is a very short-term responsibility. It's a short-term focus. It's the nature of their job. They're focused on maximizing wins and margins in the very short term. Steven Silas is not making the decision to sit John Wall. That's an organizational thing. Steven Silas is simply the liaison explaining it. So I was shocked that people acted horrified about that coming from the front office. Yeah. We knew that already. Especially because Steven Silas is the guy that played, that KJ Martin had to earn his spot in the rotation three times in three different years as a young player. He got he got Daniel House playing playing over him. He got David Nuava playing over him. Yep. He got Eric. He's got play Eric Gordon playing him over him right now. DJ Augustine got heavy minutes. Uh, David Nuava got heavy minutes. Daniel House. Uh, Dennis Schroeder came in with no seniority and got minutes over Josh Christopher, who was playing well up to that point as well. Steven Silas at every step has shown us that he will play the vet over the young guy unless told otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, this idea that that was coming from Steven is just absolutely silly. And again, it's not unprecedented. This is part of rebuilding. It's frustrating here in Houston because we haven't really been through it with this particular fan base. It's not that different than what OKC did with Kimba Walker, right? I mean, this happens. Organizations make decisions that certain guys just don't fit in with their rebuild in terms of their on-court role. And at that point, there's 
just a non-playing arrangement. This is not unprecedented. And then the other part that I wanted to push back on, Wall made a huge deal of his routine, having to come in in the morning and do his work independent of the team. Listen to that interview. He was extremely disgruntled. And I saw some people using it to sort of push back at Rafael, who I remember at 2021 Media Day when they first announced this arrangement and went on the record about it. He talked about his positive relationship with John when he was asked, I mean, what the hell is he supposed to say? That, no, this is a train wreck, that our relationship is terrible. No, no that's something that he just has no choice when you ask him directly on the record. That's what he's going to say. Uh, sometimes the truth is not that friendly behind the scenes. But with a guy that's that disgruntled, why would you want him around young, impressionable players like Jalen Green, like Alperin Shingun, like Kevin Porter Jr. on a daily basis? Sorry, I'm going to defend the Rockets on that one. Given the clear animosity and bitterness that built up within John Wall as part of this process, no, I wouldn't want him around the younger guys every day and potentially poisoning them against the organization. I see what the organization was thinking on that part. I have no issue with that at all. And then the comments that Wall said about, you know, the 10 to 15 minute bench roll occasionally not playing. Why did he want to come back at all then? The Rockets had made it clear that Kevin Porter Jr. was the starting point guard. So when he made this deal about wanting to come back around Thanksgiving 2021, what did he think the potential role was? Again, this seems like a guy who thought he could handle it. And then once the day day in, day out of watching all your peers around the NBA play while you're not, basically it started to get to him. And so this whole deal with the Rockets did him wrong with the whole 10 to 15 minutes per game role. I just listened to that and I'm like, what role did you think was available? What do you think changed from when you had these conversations in September to when you tried to revisit the situation in late November and start ramping up to come back. This was the role. They were trying out, for better or for worse, Kevin Porter Jr. That just strikes me as a veteran who did not realize how difficult it would be on him. And I'm sympathetic. I'm sure it is difficult, or was difficult. He is playing now with the Clippers. Well, has been. Now he's out with injury for a couple of weeks. I'm sure it was difficult on him. But that's something where, again, there was nothing that fundamentally changed from the organization's perspective relative to the agreement they worked out in September. So I just don't see really what the huge deal is there. And to go a step further, if it's that easy to set him off, if he's that disgruntled, then I don't think you want him around your young players, right? Yeah. And another thing that people are really up in arms about is the, he has a quote where he says, um, second year, I'll just read the, the, the entire quote. Second year, they didn't want to, to play me at all. End of my first year, they said they, they wanted to bring me back. We love the way you're leading the team. Leadership for the young guys. I said, if if God put me here to lead the young guys, that's what that's what it is. But he didn't put me here for y'all, and I'll blur out the the <laughs> the bad words, to tank and, and me be a player that can still play and wasting my talent. I would have been fine coming off the bench. Just don't give... Uh, Someone, the spot, let him earn it, referring to KPJ. Coach said, uh, how would you feel coming off the bench? And I said, for who? No offense, but for who? And and the coach said, this is what the GM wants. And people are up in arms about this part. 
and people are thinking that that's what the GM wants, and they're thinking, well, okay, so now it's Rafael Stone's fault that Nation Nix is still playing. It's Rafael's fault that we're playing through KPJ. It's Rafael's fault that Keon Green's not getting enough catch and shoot shots. It's Rafael's fault that we play no defense. It's Rafael's fault that we overhelp, but it's basically on every, every single possession. It's Rafael's fault that uh, Josh Crisford's out of the rotation. It's Rafael's fault that Gerson Matthews is playing. It's Rafael's fault that Bruno Fernando is playing. Guys, the GM takes care of macro decisions. And 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 I may, might be proven wrong on this. And he might have more hand in more day-to-day things than, than, what, than what I'm realizing right now. But Sam Presti himself sat all Horford. The Oklahoma City Thunder as an organization are known for sitting players in in benefit of younger players all the right, time. The Kemba and, example. Yeah. yeah, the Kemba Walker example. Sometimes even with the sole purpose of losing, not even for the for development. And he's not getting and he's not getting any of this flag. He's not he's not getting, you know, um the responsibility for every decision the coaching staff makes. Let's the the sitting John Wall in hindsight, a lot of people are coming out of the woodworks being really, really, really mad at it. At it. Revisionist history, yeah. Back then, everybody wanted John Wall on the bench. Yep. Must I remind you that John Wall averaged 20 and 7, yes, but on 50% through shooting when he was here. He was not good. Average through shooting in the league right now is 57%. I thought he was 56% back then. He was not a good player. He was okay. He could get a role. He went to the Clippers on a smaller role this year, and he's even less efficient than he was. That's why he's on the trade market. John Wall was not as good as he's painting himself to be. But regardless, this is a rebuilding team. Of course, the 30-year-old All-Star is always, throughout the entire season, going to be better than the 21-year-old Kevin Porter Jr. Of course. But in rebuilds, all the time, you sit vets in order to give prominence to young guys. That's what Stone was doing. And, it, and now, with hindsight, we know that that KPK is not a point guard. But back then, there was a lot of optimism, even within the fan base, that KPK right. was, could be a point guard. He right. had, and there was value uh, in finding out. Yeah. And they, they, he had a 14 assist game. He had a 50 uh, and 10 game. There was optimism that he could be the next James Harden. He didn't end up being, but you, you had to find out. And so this mm-hmm. let him earn it. You know, it sounds really good in theory, but no rebuilding team is doing this. Paolo Banquero got drafted and he was inst- instantly in the lineup. Jalen Suggs got drafted. He sucked, but he was instantly in the lineup. Cole Anthony was way better than Jalen Suggs when Jalen Suggs came in. Jalen Suggs still played. Like this meritocracy thing. When it comes to vets and young players, the vets are always going to be better. Yeah. Does that mean the rebuilding team should start playing all of their vets and the young pl- until the until the young players are good enough, which they likely won't become until they get those reps right. artificially? It's a balance. Like this is not out of the ordinary. This is done on every team, and back then people celebrated. I can pull back yeah. tweets from everyone that's complaining right now. People celebrated John yeah. Wall going to the bench. They thought, oh my God, I didn't think they'd have they've had the courage to do it. And they did it. And so after he is on the bench, I can totally understand what Ben was saying right now, which is, well, it sounded good to begin with, but anybody who's played sports knows what it is to even when you have an injury, to be next to your to your colleagues and not be able to play, not be able to play eats at you. If you're a competitive yeah. person, it eats at you. And so eventually I can totally see John Wall just being done with it. And if you remember, back then, there was a report that, that he was fine not playing. 
but he was going to stay with the team. And then a couple yeah. of months later, I think closer to Christmas, another report came out saying that, oh, John, another report flared up of, of oh, John Wall wants to play, but the Rockets won't let him. And, and then the Rockets had to come out and clarify, no, the Rockets are fine with playing him off the bench, but he doesn't want to come off the bench. Every, does everybody remember this? So did everybody forget? And even back then, the theory that was running was John Wall is likely playing for his next contract. He likely gets bought out at the end of the season. And so coming off the bench for the worst team in the league might not be the best for his uh, value in free agency. That was yep. another another uh, possible incentive. Because sometimes it's better to not play and have your last season be a 20 and, and six season for the worst team in the league. Or, or have people, you know, the last memory of you be oh, this guy used to be an all-star, then to play off the bench and, and have like 20 and four, and have like 10 and 4 off the bench for the, the worst team in the league. So it was not good in his financial interest either. But all of those nuances now are forgotten because there's one, only one side telling the story. And even if there was another side telling the story, Ralph Alston could never in a million years come and say and, and try to pull the curtain behind some of what the motivations could right. have been. I agree. Just not good for I business. Do. I agree. They could help them a little bit because I do think that some of this is revisionist history from fans that just want a punching bag, as you were getting at. And I do think that you could tamp down within the fan base, the diehards, that is some of the unrest simply by being a bit more transparent, a bit more out there. Again, it would be a bit superficial. You're certainly not going to get into the weeds, the depths of what John said and explain why it's wrong again it just doesn't make sense for the rockets trying to do what they're going to be trying to do over the next few months to fight it from that perspective and to get in that type of public pissing match so i'm right there with you uh stone's put in a, a tough spot i do think he could help himself on this and a few other fronts by being a bit more transparent and getting back to some of the media routines that he's done in the past similar to what daryl has done during his time as well maybe he didn't have to do quite as many podcasts as uh daryl did although we won't turn him down i'll say that but uh, at least a few of them can help a bit not a ton but just a little bit and the closing comments that I'll make as we wrap up to try and tie this together with regards to the Steven Silas angles, the reason that I'm on board, be it during the season or letting him go after I find very minimal, if any positive things to attribute to Steven Silas over the last three years. That's not to say that everything is his fault. Clearly the situation shifted dramatically underneath him relative to when he was hired but I struggle to see how it could be that much worse simply because there aren't a whole lot of positives collectively or individually. The one thing you could point to before this season and perhaps attribute it to Steven was the growth of Jalen Green as a rookie. Well, now we've seen Jalen largely regress in his second season, as we talked about earlier. So for me, the decision to part ways with Steven is pretty simple because is it a guarantee the next coach is going to be better? No, but I also feel pretty confident that it can't really be worse. This is bottoming out. As opposed to Raphael Stone, are there some annoying things, some tendencies that it's fair to question? Yes, absolutely. But as we talked about in our Raphael Stone grading show from a week ago, there are clear positives. There are objectively correct decisions he's made, not just in terms of drafting X player at X spot, where a lot of scouts might have said, for example, at three, Jamari Smith was something of a no-brainer. I agree. You can't give 
Rafflestone all the credit for that. It was fairly simple. But there's things like when to trade Robert Covington, the contract extensions for Jay Sean Tate, for Kevin Porter Jr. that are so team friendly that he did just this past offseason. There are undeniably positive things that Raphael Stone has done to where if you let him go, I do believe it could get worse. Now, that's not to say that it, could, that it couldn't be better. I'm not saying that at all. He has definitely made his mistakes. But I'm a big believer that when you make a move, you need to weigh both the upside and the downside scenarios of that move. With Steven Silas, I don't see much downside. It doesn't guarantee the upside of a, of a change is going to pan out. But in theory, it can. With Rafael Stone, not saying you can't upgrade him. You absolutely can. But you better feel confident that the guy that you're bringing in is clearly better. Because as you mentioned at the end of our episode last week, it can definitely be worse than what Rafael Stone has given you over the past three years in terms of his GM track record. So that's why for me, I'm not going to give him a full endorsement. I'm just going to say that unlike Steven Silas, you absolutely could do worse than Rafael Stone. So because of that, I do think you have to be a bit more careful in terms of you know, calling for his head on a stake, if you will. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think when you judge his GM job, um he's done he's done good things i think what pe most people are concerned about is what he's done on the day-to-day -day basis and that's basically how i feel and as i've said before we won't really be able to truly judge by the end of next season to see because at that point it's a results-based analysis you have to be good enough to make the play in by then or be in a fantastic spot if you're not so yeah it basically boils down to that and i think people right now are just looking for a punching bag and as you said if, I don't think that I don't think you lose much by getting rid of Steven Salas. I think that his replacement is almost impossible to be worse than him. And with Rafael Stone, I mean, there's there's some bad GMs around the league. It's <laughs> I think people um, I think that the average level of coaching versus GMs is the coaching. There's a lot more talented coaches than there are talented GMs. Yeah, and that, in closing, I'll say that does not mean that criticism of Rafael Stone is unwarranted. No, absolutely not. It's fair to hold him accountable. It's fair to ask for improvement. It's fair to ask questions. All of those things are completely reasonable. I'm just saying there is a line. You can offer these criticisms without necessarily calling for his job. This is not an apples to apples to what's going on with Steven. This is a bit trickier, and it is possible to criticize, to disapprove certain things without thinking that the guy is terrible and should be replaced. And keep in mind, he's a first-time GM. Perhaps some of these day-to-day -day things he'll learn from and improve as the years progress, or perhaps he'll have more trust in the next coaching staff. That could be a variable as well. I would just say with Rafael Stone, understand the nuance. It's possible to disapprove of certain things without believing that a full-scale change is necessary. It's not as... The way Twitter often makes it seem is you're either all in or you're all out. Either he's the guy, Stone is the GM of the NBA champions a few years from now, I think he's an all-time great, or he should be fired. There is a middle ground in which you can acknowledge that mistakes have been made, that things can be wrong, that he's capable of making wrong decisions, and yet the good outweighs the bad, and at least for the time being, it makes sense to move forward with him in a way that it probably does not with Steven Silas. That's the best way that I would sum it up. And with that, I will draw this episode to a close. 
If you want more content before our next episode, again, we're recording this Thursday morning. So if something shifts on the coaching front, the GM front, again, just be mindful of when we recorded and stay with us. We'll have more content very shortly after whatever takes place. The best place to get it before we record again is on Twitter. I'm on there at Ben DuBose. Paolo is on there at Paolo Alves NBA. And the show is on there at the logger line. That's where you can find our link tree. And that link tree, it has information not just on this show and where you can listen to it, Apple, Google, Spotify, your podcast distributor of choice, but it also has our partners and sponsors, Sports Talk 790, Rockets Wire, Carbach Brewing. You can access their content and information through our link tree as well. Again, just find that at the logger line. That's where you can find basically everything you need to know about us and this show. With that, we will wind down. For Paolo, I'm Ben. Thanks as always for listening, and please come back soon for another new episode of The Locker Line. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.